NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for Season 10, Episode 28, in closing. This week's episode, we are, we are coming to an end of Season 10, and I was breaking down the prosecutor's closing arguments and, and gave you guys a few new leads in the case, uh, one of which I need to do some corrections on, uh, but had a lot of listener engagement since then. It's been great. I appreciate all of you. Several of you have given us questions for this week's episode, so we're going to get right into those, and we have one week left of Season 10. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get into questions, I do need to make a correction. Uh, I made this on Sunday in all forms of social media, but I wanted to make sure to get out here on the podcast. In the episode this week, I gave you the uh, criminal record for Eva's boyfriend. I didn't give you the name, still not giving you the name. But the, I, I, what I found out later, thanks to uh, some listeners, some diligent listeners that that already know who this individual is and have done their own research, that that criminal record I gave you is not for Eva's boyfriend. Uh, the issue is the databases that I use for my background check. I, I can't give too much away because it'll, 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 I just don't want to put this much information out there. But essentially, I got confirmations through the software and the databases that I was using. I usually use uh, three points of confirmation before I'm sure of something. I had my three points, and then what I found out was that the individual has the same first name, last name, and middle initial, and they're similar age, and uh, th that information was close enough that the databases got confused too. Uh, thankfully, though, I, there were some listeners, several listeners brought it to my attention privately, which I appreciate. They sent me messages and were very helpful. In trying to figure it out, we spent a few hours uh, trying to confirm one way or another, and then ultimately uh, a document was provided by someone. I want to give a shout out to uh, Danny Cash, who's a, who's a listener you, you've heard their name on here before. Uh, they do a great job of research, and and they reached out to me and told me they think I got it wrong, and they had a document that 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 confirmed that I did in fact have the wrong person. And so that that so that that you can disregard the criminal record I gave uh, the actual boyfriend. There's like a minor theft back in the the late '80s. No drug charges, none of that stuff. That was, that was for another different individual. So my apologies for the mistake. Again, we corrected on social media. I want to make sure I've corrected it here. And I think I'm going to put. I can't really. It's because some people are saying we need to edit the episode, but that gets super complicated with the platform that we upload episodes to with the timestamps and everything for ads. Uh, but I think I may just do a quick little intro for that episode. I think I can do that uh, and plug it in on the front just to let people know when you hear that part that it's incorrect. But I do want to thank all the listeners who helped me work through that uh, and specifically Danny Cash, not only for that, but uh, there's another thing that we're working on right now 
and they've been they've been extremely helpful, and I'm very very thankful and appreciative for the the support and help from all of you. That's what the show is all about is about crowdsourcing. Uh, and I definitely get things wrong from time to time, and I certainly dropped the ball here. And and thankfully, you all were there to to correct me so we can move forward with the correct information. So again, to be clear, the the criminal record that I listed for Eva's boyfriend at the time was incorrect. Disregard that information. That is for the, that record is for a different individual. And with that being said, we can move right into questions. Zach, did you have anything about the episode before we get into listener questions? So going through this episode as a true listener, it was really upsetting to hear the closing arguments from uh, it. It really got to me the way that she presented Jennifer in court and the way that she kept harping on how this child could do this. And she kept the way that she kept phrasing it. I mean, just really bothered me. Yeah, it, 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 it the, the way she I mean, that's what they do. So, I mean, you can't put too much on D Glazer because, this, you know, David Dobbs back in season two when I met with him you know, explain things to me and it, it makes me just want to just scream. I hate that this is the way our system works. Uh, but as he said, he's like, look, once the police have finished their investigation, when I go into court, my job is to win. That's my job is to win. And, and, a, and a very, you know, sadly, and I, I've said for years that the mis, the, the misnomer in our criminal justice system is that the, the prosecution is the one that has they're the underdogs, right? Because mm-hmm. they have the burden of proof. We just talked about this with the defense attorney you, that you tattooed this weekend. That you know the, the you're supposed to have a presumption of innocence, and that's why in the courtroom the prosecution gets the advantages. And one of the advantages they get, number one, they get to present their case first. Number two is that they get the final word to the jury. The prosecution gets to give their closing arguments last. So the last thing the jury hears before they go in to deliberate is the prosecutor bringing everything together and tying it into a nice little bow. It's supposed to be because they're, they are at a disadvantage, but I think that all of us listening know that that's really not the case. The presumption of innocence is a fallacy. Uh, I know that from sitting on juries, being parts of jur- juries, listening to the questions that people go through during voir dire, voir dire, however, whatever part of the country you're from. Someone's going to tell me I said that wrong. But people really don't have – people assume that the person sitting in the defendant corner is guilty because the police put him there. And even though they're not supposed to have to prove their their innocence, they they, they need to. So uh, the, the prosecution's at an advantage, and Dee Glazer did exactly what most prosecutors would do. You know, I think she knew that the jury was going to have a hard time with the evidence they heard convicting Jennifer Jeffley, a 15-year-old girl, of capital murder when, in fact, the state doesn't even presume – that it doesn't even doesn't even put out there that she's the one that killed Catalina, uh, and I think that was important to hear uh, th- that fact for one, and and the fact that you know she knew that was going to be a problem, and that's why we get the the you know she's trying to tap into their emotions. Don't think of her as a little girl because she knew that people would be thinking of her as a little girl, and so she's trying to defeat that. She obviously did. She got the conviction. Uh, and she tried to make her seem as ruthless and horrible as possible. Yeah. I mean, she really did play into that and really played into She was more a part of the murder than what was presented, I believe. Yeah. You know, she talked about her smashing the pot and that she had to be the person that smashed the pot and then she, you know, repeatedly smashed her over the head. Right. And that's where, you know, the, I don't remember if I said in the episode, but there were objections from coin when she was saying that because you're not allowed to misrepresent evidence. But as I said, you're allowed to make inferences and that's all subjective to the judge. And so. Uh, Coin was objecting when she said, you know, you know, it had to be her that's, you know, however she put it, that uh, 
smashed the glass or the, the, the ceramic or the pottery over her head. And he objected. He said, that's not what the evidence says. And the judge said, overruled. The jury heard the evidence. And, and different judges are different. But this particular judge, the response was the same every time that happened. The jury heard the evidence. They can decide what's true and what's not true and just let her keep going. Mm. And so she, she just presented that case. And, and there, there was a few things. That was one of them. And there was, she just made it seem that she was, you know, that, that she essentially, she said she wanted her to die. That she jumped in and went inside because she knew when she saw her face that they want to kill her. And I don't think that even people that believe Jennifer's guilty of being involved actually believe that. Yeah, I, there was a lot of strange stuff. And, and the part about her going back in to make sure that she was dead because she knew that she could, you know, point her out if she wasn't dead. Right. It, just, it was way over the top for me. I mean, it was, it was pretty hard to listen to. It was really disheartening. And think about what that means. So, so what's, what's she saying? That if she went in there and she's not dead, she was going to finish her off in front of everybody? Yeah, yeah that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it, 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 it's silly. But yeah, it, it's, it's rough to hear. I think that uh, we do have, we've had a few emails come in. One of them from Danny Cash, who I mentioned a minute ago, from listeners with the uh, the person that lives next door, uh, and again, the Laura Heaney is is the listener that found that information, and it was I mean that's solid because I honestly I looked and I was even using the same database as her, and I couldn't it wasn't coming up for me even when I knew what I was looking for, but somehow she was able to determine that there was in fact someone living there. We've heard uh, I just heard I haven't been through I, I would share it with you, but I the the message came in literally as I was sitting down. That they think that there was someone else living there with him. Okay. And that, and who the, who he was married to later. So we've got some leads on that. And that's a big one. The, the Jennifer's attorney was very thankful. When yeah. I that's a great that. find. It really is a great find. Yeah. It's, the big thing for me was that note that Alan said that he found, he realized there was two people that were interviewed where there was no report. And, you know, that could be, again, it could be nothing. But if, if, if that individual is one of them and they gave him some information that's exculpatory, that's Brady. That could, that could be the ticket. So, so Laura's fine there could be, um, again, could be nothing. I'm not purporting that it absolutely is something huge. It could be absolutely nothing. They could have never talked to him. That person could have not been home. But it's, it's definitely one of the strongest leads that we've found so far. All right, guys, let's jump into these questions. Our first question is from Lauren. Is there any work being done on the DNA from the crime scene? I know we've talked about the unknown DNA. Does Jennifer's lawyer have the money to test it? Uh, I don't. I I don't know. I don't know what the financial situation is. Um, I do know that. Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of the plan is to test pretty much everything possible. So there. So I'm certain that that that's part of what he's doing uh, is a lot of DNA testing. I don't know what their their funding is like for them to be able to do that. Uh, and then you got to look at too what's going to help. You know, they, really, you need somebody to compare it to. You need to get full profiles. The biggest problem that Jennifer's facing is the fact that as part of the confession, she said that two other people killed them. So if you find two, you know, well, they did at trial, right? So at trial, they said there was at least two unknown contributors' DNA, and they were swabbing blood. This isn't just like touch DNA. Uh, They're swabbing blood off of the ceramic, and they found two unknown contributors' blood on there. You know, that didn't help her because the the confession says so. You almost have to know who it is, and it almost would have to be to help her. I think a known character, right? So some something to further conflict with the with the confession. So, as an example, say you test the blood and find out it's Red Rock's blood. Well, now now kind of the confession's called into question because Red Rock's part of her story, but he's not the person she was killing there. You know, there's there's a lot of spin that could put on it. 
Personally, my recommendation to Jennifer's attorney is to to test the wallet for touch DNA, um, which could be tricky because, you know, it, it passed through a few hands. Um, but if you can find, you know, it's in that apartment. So if you say find Eva's DNA on the wallet, not Jennifer's, I think that's a huge, huge, you know, I, I remember red flags overused or the phrase, but it would be a big red flag because, you know, the story is and has to be that Jennifer's the one that put it there. But if it's instead it's Eva's or Katie's or youngsters DNA on the wallet, then, you know, that that's a whole different story. Something that was touched in the episode and I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure about, but I think it was touched that, that there's no usable DNA on the wallet because it was in the bag for so long. I mean, it, does that sound feasible or is that just completely out of nowhere? It was fingerprints. Okay. Uh, they, t- they tested the wallet. They never tested it for DNA. They tested it for fingerprints. Couldn't find any usable fingerprints on it. The defense, the defense essentially blamed Cobb for that, saying, well, yeah, there's no, there, you know, there's friction from it being bouncing around in that bag for all the time and it's, and it's making it so you can't get fingerprints off of it. And then in the closing arguments, you know, when she was kind of trying to check things off the list, she she said that, you know, that, that had nothing to do with it. But then the, the, she made a weird argument. She said, we didn't even find Maria's fingerprint, or she said Maria, but Catalina's fingerprint. Maria's her first name, but she went by her middle name. Uh, some people asked about that, too. Um, but she didn't even find, we didn't even find Catalina's fingerprints on it. And therefore, it's not Cobb's fault, which that, I don't quite follow that logic. Yeah, it seems like it would still be his fault because if, right. if her fingerprints aren't on there, then they all got rubbed off. Yeah, it seems like it would be more his fault. Yeah. Than that. And the truth of the matter is that I don't think that being in a bag would affect the fingerprints. It's just, you know, as we, we've talked about a long time ago in this season that, you know, finger, it's not like on TV. Fingerprints are harder to come by than you think, especially usable fingerprints. So I, th- I think just the, the material probably had more to do with it. All right. This one's from Daryl. In the episode, you said, quote, Eva really should not have known anything was taken out of that apartment. Remember, she wasn't even hanging around the apartment for days after the murder. She moved out the day after she was gone. So the only way she really could have known is if one of the police officers told her about it when they talked to her sometime before the grand jury. End quote. Why do you conclude that this is the only way Eva could have known anything was taken out of the apartment when one obvious explanation is that she actually saw Jennifer stuffing something in her pants. I don't know if I'd call that an obvious explanation, but but certainly that is a possible explanation. The problem is, I mean, I don't believe that she saw that. And I, and I say that because she spoke with police three different times, never said anything about that, about her stuffing the wall in her pants. Then months later, when she testifies at trial, now she adds the, or at grand, the grand jury, she adds in this detail. But the entire scene she describes is bullshit. She's it, it, it doesn't line up with anything. She says the the youngster standing there, Jennifer screaming and crying. She put like that scene did not happen, whether or not she put the wall. So she made up a story and just completely made up everything along with it. And and you know people are going to believe what they want to believe. But you know even when you're looking at statement analysis, trying to remember something she saw. And you have these different elements to it. They should all tie together. You should be able to fit that into something she saw an emotional time for her. And the reality is, what we know is when she went back with Pam, Eva went straight up to the apartment. We have we have plenty of witnesses that saw that Eva was gone. She didn't go to the door. She didn't follow Pam behind her. She went up to her apartment. She wasn't even standing there. Youngster wasn't standing there. Everybody's recollection of Jennifer was that she was calm and not, you know, she seemed, you know, unbothered by the situation. 
uh, before at least at that point when she didn't know what was what was happening. So, so the entire story doesn't make sense besides the fact that it it was an addition that was put in later. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's obvious that that's that that's how she would know something was gone. But but I guess I'll concede that sure it's a possibility, but in my mind it's not a good possibility. I'm just not sure why she wouldn't include that early on. If she was already trying to throw the heat onto Jennifer in her early statements, why she wouldn't include that if that wasn't true or if she didn't see it. Right. To the point where she tells them, you know what, I thought I thought about it again. And, you know, that voice I said was too deep and raggedy. Actually, I'm pretty sure that was Jennifer's voice. Like she went that far to lie, change her story, to throw Jennifer under the bus. And she's not going to mention. Also, I saw her stuffing something in her pocket. Mm-hmm. I don't buy it. Joe says, I thought you mentioned Katie testifying. Can you elaborate? Yeah, Katie's testimony was brought in by the the prosecutor. You testified for the prosecution, actually. It was very brief. I thought we covered it months ago. If not, I'll get it posted on the website. But the entirety of his testimony was based around whether or not Jennifer's grandmother came out and was the whole scene where she came out and said, well, I want to go with you. And he wouldn't let her ride with because he said there wasn't enough room. And then she said, well, I'm going to get my keys. Will you wait for me? And she went out to get the went in to get the keys and he took off. That was the only thing he testified about. And what he testified to was that that he doesn't, you know, he didn't notice her. Basically, you know, the pro, on, on direct, the prosecutor said, did you see anybody come out? Did you see your grandmother? Did you see this happen? And he said, no, under cross. Coin asked, you know, what were you doing? I was messing with the radio. Were you paying attention? No, not really. So it was kind of left kind of, it was kind of ambiguous. Like, well, so she could have, but you didn't see it. In closing, the prosecutor made it seem as though he very much confirmed that that never happened when in reality, what he said was he wasn't paying attention and doesn't, and didn't see that happen. But that was, you know, another one where Coin didn't have access to his statement. He didn't know that the big part of the statement conflicts with Youngster and Eva and Jennifer. So he never called him as a witness. He didn't know that he would be a witness. My guess is he was on the prosecution's witness list. So he probably assumed that he was going to, you know, throw Jennifer under the bus. But the reality was all they used him for was that. And he never testified to anything. Neither him or Youngster were called to testify about what actually happened that morning. It's one of the biggest. Uh, amongst the pile of frustrations with this case, you have two eyewitnesses that were right there experiencing everything, and neither of them testified at trial because one side didn't know they could be useful, and the other side knew they wouldn't be. So we never hear from them. Gil says, it's been such a fascinating and infuriating season, but I just can't understand Jennifer's attorney not wanting to do whatever's possible to help their client. I'm not saying that you can guarantee success, but surely this deep dive and publicity is better than nothing. Will the attorney not give an interview either? Has it changed the way you'll think about choosing cases in the future? Before you answer, let me jump in and say something. As a listener of the show, it's super disappointing that the lawyer's not letting her talk. Being part of the show, it's super disappointing that the lawyer's not letting her talk. We can't progress the case. I'm sure the family is not super thrilled about it. I'm sure whatever case advocates she had isn't thrilled about it, but it, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. And I guess my first response would be, I, I very much believe that Jennifer's attorney believes that he is doing what's best to help his client. So I, I want to make that clear. It's not like, it's not like Justin is going, oh, well, here's this big opportunity to help her. I don't want to do it. I think that he feels that his route is the, is the best route. 
and any media involvement is 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 going to be you know possibly detrimental or could possibly present some problems or conflicts in the case. I don't know. That's very as I've mentioned before. That's not uncommon. Uh, attorneys, I've, I've, I've been looking reviewing our upcoming cases. I've met with several attorneys this week, and I've had you know a lot of attorneys that are you know we have selected season ten or season eleven, and I met with their with that person's entire legal team uh, yesterday morning, and they're just the gung ho. They see the value in what we're doing, and they're excited for us to do it. But that's that's a rarity, I think, in in the in the legal space. So. I don't. I, I don't think that it, I, it's frustrating. Like Zach said, I truly believe that if we had full access to to continue going forward, that we could we could make much more progress. But that being said, you know that that, that he's not doing anything wrong, and and very well maybe doing something right. It could be, you know, maybe, maybe we maybe we just mess things up if we go forward. I don't think so, but that's it's a. I'm sure that's that's what he's thinking. I I don't know, but. But I definitely don't think we should be disparaging either the uh, attorney or Jennifer or the family for making this decision. They're doing what they think is best for Jennifer, and I, I, I honestly hope that they're right. Carl says, with all the head-scratching we've done in this case, where do you see Jen's attorney heading from here? At this point, we're looking at different people to see who or what makes sense in the case. Do you have any clues or ideas, or do we just have to wait for it to play out in the courts? Really, we got to wait. I mean, I do have some information. I've talked to Justin a lot and been in communication over the months, but you know, I, I kind of have an idea what the strategy is. I don't want to share that with everybody, so we'll have to wait till the till it happens in the courts. I, th- I think he's got a good plan. I think he does. Nancy says, "Could the rules from the time where the attorneys didn't have access to the witness statements before trial be used now as a Brady claim?" No, no, they can't. You, you can't. You can't change the rules after the game. Is is the best I guess analogy I could I could give you, but no, if, if that was the case, and I still don't I don't understand that I don't understand how that's possible, but from what I'm told, that is the case. And if if the rules then said they didn't have to turn over the documents, then you can't come back 25 years later and say you violated her rights because those that wasn't her right at the time. So no, I don't think so. Tanya says, "Are you willing to share with us the race of Eva's boyfriend?" I'm curious because Eva specified that the voice sounded like a black man imitating an old woman. Even if she could determine a person's race from only their voice, is that really something she could still do while said person was also pretending to be an older Hispanic lady? It seems telling that she was the only one to add the odd detail when the others just said it sounded like a man. No, I mean, it's, it's a good point, but no, I don't want to do anything to, to, to dox this person because there's just, there's just, again, at this point, there's no reason to. Chris says, are we sure that the wallet found was her most current wallet? Wondering if it's possible. I get it. Isn't all that probable. The wallet was stolen earlier than this. No, I don't think so. I mean, no, cause she had her driver's license, credit cards, all that stuff was in the wallet. I mean, I suppose if it got stolen and she had replaced that, but that seems like something Juan would know about or his wife would if something like that had happened. So, I mean, I mean, we can speculate about anything, but I don't think there's any evidence to support that. No. Lynn says, what do you think are the two or three most important things you've discovered that can help find Catalina's true killer? Things not apparent before starting the case. 
Also, I don't recall, is there a blood sample from the knife drawer or the plastic that can be tested today? Will you be attempting to identify a connection between Eva's father and police that may have influenced the favorable treatment she received from investigators? All right, let's see if I can remember all three of these questions. Going backwards, uh, Eva's father, that's something that Jennifer's attorney, I'm sure, will be working on with the, the PI, uh, with the PIs that he has working for him. Uh, as far as the testing of the blood, no, that was made a big deal at trial that they don't have, if I'm remembering correctly, they don't have the plastic anymore because that was, uh, you know, there was the whole discussion on why didn't they test the blood that was on it. And then, uh, and then it was followed up with, well, where is it now? And they said, they don't know they had lost it. Uh, so I believe that is the, the plastic, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe the plastic is gone It's not available to test. As far as the two or three things, most, you know, it's hard to say because a lot of what we've had to do this season is a lot of analysis. I think, I think the analysis that we have done, both with having Jim Clemente and our own analysis on the different statements, you, so you, it's a lot of, you know, it's not solid evidence, but I think it, it points in a direction for sure. When we do things like look at, let's break down who, you know, let's break down all of these stories and figure out. How can we tell if the fake voice was real or not? It has never been presented prior to us covering this and investigating this. No one has ever considered the fact that I'm aware of that there wasn't actually a fake voice. And then no one has ever broken down if there wasn't, if it's a lie, how do we source the lie? And I, and I, and I stand by, I think we've got a solid analysis on that. Our reasonings for uh, our conclusions on that analysis are, you know, again, agree with them, disagree with them, could be right, could be wrong. But you can't really argue with the logic that led us to the conclusions that we have. Uh, and that's why, you know, when I started the case, I told you guys that, you know, I didn't think that Eva had any involvement in this. I, I really thought my, when I initially looked at the case, my thought was it was probably, if it wasn't Jennifer and, you know, if, if the confession was false, that it was probably Red Rock and Housen. I didn't in any way think that Eva had any involvement until we really broke. And uh, I don't, you know, I'll say when I was discussing with the family, yeah, when I mentioned, do you think Eva had any involvement? No one seemed to think so. And she may not have. I'm not saying she does, but all of that analysis, there's logic behind all of it. And I think that it certainly points us in, in a good direction. I want, I, honestly, I would say the biggest find that we've had is something that came recently. And it wasn't for me. I think Laura finding, uh, finding the name of the resident that lived in the apartment next door. Uh, I think that that could be huge. I, whether or not that that pans out to anything important, I think that is a that is a huge piece of the puzzle, and that had nothing to do with me. But that's the beauty of the crowdsource investigation. That's what we you know, if we finish a season and finish a case, and I don't figure anything out, and you guys figure it all out, then I feel like I've done my job to to create and facilitate the discussions that lead to those conclusions. Like like I'm I'm thrilled. That that was found, and I think that is that that could prove to be a very big one. Um, also, I think talking to Cena Sullivan, no one's ever asked anyone from the area what the word on the street was about what happened then, and, and that information we got from from Cena, I think is 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 critically important too. But again, a lot of that has to do with analysis, and and it's 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 all very subjective. You could also look at a lot of that analysis and say that's you know you're reading tea leaves, and who cares. So, but, but I'm proud of the work that we've done. I'm, I'm very proud of the work that you as the listeners have done, both the, the group of listeners that, uh, that don't think Jennifer had any involvement and the group that believes that she does have some involvement. You know, there's, there's been obviously some, 
a, a lot of uh, volatility going around there. You know, it seems every season that tends to get worse and worse um, and some negativity that goes back and forth. But if you slice through it, you know, like, you know, uh, people like, like, like uh, Chris Dolan, who I had on the podcast. Um, I've mentioned Danny a few times, you know, these Chris kind of goes back and forth, but Danny, as far as I know, has always, always leaned towards the Jennifer is guilty. Uh, we disagree on a lot of things. But they have also been an integral part of helping find new information. So I think that the, you know, all of us working together, and that's why people. Sorry, I'm going on a little tangent here, but you know, in like the Facebook fan page where a lot of the investigative discussions happen, you know, people get pissed off when when we when we boot people out or kick people out, and they and they go into the other groups and claim they were kicked out because they disagreed. It couldn't be further from the truth. All it is is act like a fucking adult. If you can, if you can be in the group and act like an adult, and you know, as I said, I, I feel like a kindergarten teacher sometimes. Like, listen, if you would tell people, you know what, I disagree with you because of this, that will make for a great discussion that may have a great conclusion. But when you disagree with somebody and you say you're a fucking idiot and you're biased and you're this and start calling names and these ad hominem, you know, it, it's I can't argue with you on the facts, so I'm going to attack you personally. It, it just creates nastiness that nobody wants to be a part of and nothing's productive. That's why we kick people out when they do that, whether they agree with me or disagree with me. I encourage people to be in that group that disagree with me because that's where we, the, the, the mistake that I made this week, you know, that's found by people that disagree with me. And, and, and it was brought to my attention by people who disagree with me, but do so respectfully enough that we can have that conversation. And, and so you know, we want people from all these different viewpoints to be, uh, to be working together. And I just wish that there was, there's just, I'm sorry, there's people that are just absolutely childish and they just have these, these, these personal vendettas that just gets in the way and it just makes noise and stops us from getting the work done we need to get done. And that's, you know, the, the, the admins on the fan page have been fantastic about, you know, you know, they put up with it and put up with it and put up with it and try to be as, uh, as inviting as possible, especially you guys would be surprised. Those of you that are listening now that maybe are in some of the other groups, you'd be surprised based on what you read and see in that group, uh, how they're saying how they just kick out anybody that disagrees. But if you actually saw the chats between the admins, the people that disagree tend to get way more slack than people agree because we don't want, or they don't want to have the image in in the group that they kick out anybody that disagrees with us. So they'll let people stay in longer with warnings and muting instead of booting because they're trying to keep those people there. But when it gets to a point where you, you know you get 50 messages from people saying I'm out because this person's an asshole, well, then you're then then they've moved them out. And by the end of the season they just, you know, essentially they impl- implemented which I think is rule number 2 in the group, the asshole rule. If you're being a jerk, then you get kicked out. So sorry about that tangent, but getting back to kind of where we're at, I am considering the hurdles that we've had this season and the and the the trials and tribulations and the struggles that we've had to go through, the 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 no access to Jennifer, there's just one thing after another. Even in, in no real hard evidence and it's a season that's required a lot of analysis. It's one of the things I like about it. I like doing that analysis, but at the same time it's made things more challenging. But I'm really proud of the fact that through all of that, we, we've been able to get a, a much clearer view of the case. I think we've made progress. I know for a fact that some of the information that we've come up with has been, has been useful for Jennifer's attorneys and has helped send them in the right direction and some things. So I want to, I, I just want to take this opportunity to thank all of you for all of that hard work from both sides. 
And 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 to, that's a really long answer to Lynn's very short question. But so those are some of the some of the things that I think that we've done well, and we've done that with a lot of adversity in front of us. And and I'm and I'm glad that we've gone through this season. Kim says, I'm thinking about penmanship. Don't you think it's possibly hard to distinguish between the handwritten words coils, couch, and counter? I don't think so. I think what she's referring to is the fact that um, Officer Cobb wrote in his report that he thought that the uh, wallet was found behind a couch. It seemed to me that that was never a handwritten anything. It seemed like he went after the wallet was finally found and put back in. I think he sat down at a computer terminal and typed in that report. I don't have any anything to indicate that was ever handwritten first. Juan says, will we be able to continue to work on this case in a sub-Facebook group like we did with the Perringer case? Yeah, if somebody wants to put that together, sure, I think that would be, that would be great because we probably will try to move the discussions like we did with Perringer to keep things on track off of the main Facebook page to keep everybody focused in on the, on the new case we're going to be starting soon. Our last question comes from Jeremy. Have the investigating officers been involved with railroading any other innocent people? Yeah, they have. As as a matter of fact, so we're as I mentioned this this Sunday's episode is going to be the season finale. I'm going to present to you uh, my final theory and how I got there, and then we're going to be moving on to season eleven. And the season eleven case has, uh, after my meeting with attorneys yesterday, has officially been chosen. As I mentioned, it's going to be. A shorter season, we have a, a long season in the works, but there's a lot of legwork that needs to be done on that. So in the meantime, we've got at least one, possibly two short seasons that are going to come in between. Uh, but the season that we're going to be covering for season 11 directly involves one of the investigative officers. One of the officers that I, you, I'm sure you can piece this together, but it's one of the officers that I have said, all the evidence from this, in, this case indicates that this is a crooked cop who will lie to put somebody in prison. In this next season, I will present to you how I know, proven, documented, that that is, in fact, true. Uh, And then also somebody else just posted uh, another case of, which I don't know much about it, but it was another, uh, it was an article from somebody who is wrongfully convicted, who uh, was coerced into a false confession by Wayman Allen. I don't know if that is, and it's been raised on appeal in that way. I don't know if that's if that's true or not. I haven't investigated it, but there are certainly yes to answer the question. There are plenty of allegations against both of these officers, Allen and Swainson, for misconduct uh, and and breaking rules to close cases. And you're going to get a really good look at it. and And I'm really curious to see with the people who have defended these officers during this season how they feel about them after next season. That's going to be coming up, and just to give you guys a little bit of heads up, too, as I said, the case is selected. We are moving fast to get it out and ready. In the meantime, after Sunday, probably expect two to four, depending, weeks of um, some kinds of interviews. We've got some interesting people. We have a public defender that I'm going to have on, I think, that's going to talk a little bit about the the criminal justice system from their perspective. We have somebody who has uh, created a patent for a crime-solving, crowd-solving digital system. I can't really explain it to you very well. That's why we're going to have him on the show. But we have some interesting interviews, but just know that there's going to be a few buffers while we, while we get our ducks in a row. We have all the documents. We're lining up interviews for Season 11. But it's a great case, great story. Has tie into this case. I think you guys are all going to be super interested in it. I'm excited to get started on it. With that being said, make sure you tune in on Sunday for the conclusion of Season 10 where I present to you once again my final 
theory that I've come up with after months of investigating this case and how I got there. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Listening to the questions that people go through during Voidir, Voidir, however, whatever part of the country you're from. Someone's going to tell me I said that wrong. Voidir, Voidir. Just, just stop. Just let's move on. <laughs> yeah.